Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Julie Owen Moylan about her historical debut, That Green-Eyed Girl. Julie was born in Cardiff, working a variety of jobs in her youth, from trainee hairdresser to chip shop attendant. Later in life, she returned to education and completed a Master's in Film and a Master's in Creative Writing. In this episode, we talk about creating sensual historical fiction, how Julie went from 70 agent rejections to a book deal, and how she balances her love of Twitter with writing discipline. But first, here's Julie with an excerpt from That Green-Eyed Girl. I served the apple pie and Zarelli's ice cream to everyone except Peggy, who was watching her figure. Somehow we finished the whole bottle of wine, and the evening wasn't going badly. I began to think that Judith was quite funny after a few drinks. She told little stories and was an excellent mimic. Her cousin Peggy started to open up a little about a man she was hoping to date. He worked in insurance and had prospects. The kitchen felt hot and sticky, overwhelmed by summer heat and too many people sitting in it, and so we moved back into the living room. I opened the window but the catch was broken and it kept sliding closed again until I propped it open with a library book. Judith and Peggy slipped off their shoes, settling themselves with legs curled under them on the couch, while I knelt on some old cushions on the floor, sorting through jazz records that we particularly liked, Chet Baker Sings, and a new record from Paris that was our current favourite. Dropping a record onto the turntable, I let the needle fall, and the melody started to play. It must have been getting late, because Peggy at one point started to fall asleep, her little face flushed pink and dribbling as her mouth fell open. Judith got up to use the bathroom again, and this time I couldn't be bothered to chase after her. I lit a couple of cigarettes and carried them into the kitchen. It was dark, and all the windows were thrown open to let in some air. The hot air outside met the hot air inside, and nothing much shifted. Gillian was standing by the table, lifting her fair hair off her neck and piling it on top of her head. I put the cigarette in Jill's mouth and leaned in. See? It wasn't so bad. Hmm, I guess not. She leaned back against me, and I knew we were all right. 
so I'm forgiven. I haven't decided yet. Gillian moved towards the window in hope of a cooling breeze, but there was none. She turned and smiled at me, tender and just a little forgiving. I was happy, slightly drunk, but I remember feeling that my life was just perfect right at that moment. I leaned across and kissed Gillian softly on the lips, as I often did when we were alone. She smiled, and then I felt her stiffen and heard her voice clipped and strange. Oh, Judith, I didn't see you there. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here with me today to talk about your debut novel, That Green-Eyed Girl. Thanks, Chloe. It's lovely to be here. So can you start by telling us what your novel, That Green-Eyed Girl, is about? It's basically a novel about complicated women set in complicated times. So it's a dual timeline. And on the one hand, we have um, this kind of rather glamorous, smoky, jazz-filled era of 1950s New York. And a couple, Dovey and Gillian, who live together as teachers, but behind closed doors are living a secret life. In the 1970s strand, we have young Ava, who's bearing the weight of a, a mentally ill mother and a, father, and a father who's kind of absent. And it's set in the same apartment over that 20-year period, and young Ava tries to find out what happened to Dovey and Gillian. What I loved about your novel is that it's two timelines, as you said, but there's never a point where I was reading one timeline and thought, oh, I wish I was reading the other timeline because they're both equally as gripping. At what point did you decide it was going to have these two stories or did that kind of come as a surprise to you that you're going to tell two stories at the same time that connect at a certain point as well? I started with the 1970s idea, actually, and I wanted to do one of those kind of almost like that movie where the camera pans out on the, the the cityscape of New York and then kind of zooms into one apartment and then zooms into one window. And I had this idea of this young girl kind of standing there in the kitchen window and I thought, oh, what will her life be like? And I wasn't very far down that process before I suddenly thought, oh, it would be really interesting to have another period because 1970s New York is quite um, crumbling and it's bankrupt and the city's really dangerous and I thought well it would be nice to have another timeline to kind of contrast with that and the 50s is always a bit rat pack a bit Sinatra Mm. a bit glamorous and I thought oh the 1950s sounds like a good a good time Uh, and it just came out of that really quite organically looking at what was going on in New York at that time and when I discovered, which it was quite a surprise to me, that it was illegal to be gay in New York during the 1950s, and that had come out of McCarthyism in America. But it really quite surprised me that that applied to New York, because we always think of New York as being quite liberal mm. um, and open as a city. So the minute I discovered that, I thought, oh, this could be really interesting. Um, and it went from there. And as soon as I have my characters, then I'm they really dictate the pace then. Mm. Yeah, because I read that the novel idea, I suppose, just started from one sentence. That's your opening sentence. What a great sentence. I'm going to read it out now. The day the box arrived, my mother thought she was Jesus. I mean, what a cracking, cracking opener that is. So you started with just that single sentence. Did it then evolve because you started thinking about character and time? How did that, how did that idea develop? 
that came out of an exercise that I did for Faber Academy where we needed to put together an opening scene. I kind of had an idea behind that, um, which was based in the 1970s and was actually kind of based on my own experience a little bit of when I was about 15 or 16 um, during a long hot summer in 1970s. My mother had a very serious mental health episode and was sectioned. And I just thought, um, not the facts of it, because the facts are completely different and it's not a memoir, but I just thought kind of the emotional landscape of it was quite interesting. And I thought, well, supposing I gave that to somebody who lives in this apartment in New York and what would her family be like and how would that be different? And I guess I'd been thinking about that because when I had to sit down and do this opening scene, I started, as I said, with this kind of idea of maybe a cityscape and who's behind that window. And I thought, oh yeah, this young woman who's got this family that's going through some tough times. And that opening line just popped out. It was the first thing that I wrote for this book and the first thing that I wrote I think pretty much for Faber Academy and I and you know uh, you know inexperienced as I was you know when you've got a really good opening line <laughs> and I was like oh, oh, oh yes thank you very much that's yeah, a, absolutely that's a, that's a that's a great one I'm having that <laughs> and and from that you know I just because I'm a bit of a pantser so I just follow what the characters want to do as soon as I had that line I thought okay well then there's gonna have to be a box isn't there Mm. (laughs) so then we went from there really oh wow I love that that it didn't change at all and it stayed identical to that first flash of inspiration you had I think that's quite unusual I think like you say there are some lines that you just know but then obviously we do, as they say, kill our darlings throughout the editing process. So it's incredible that that line came to be fully formed and then didn't change at all. Yeah, it was, uh, there was a moment because there was a bit more of the kind of mental health stuff in the first draft. And at one point my editor did say to me, I'm not sure this stuff is really working for me. And I just said, I'm not taking it out because I'd have to lose my opening line and I'm not (laughs) losing that opening line. I said, so I will change it and I kind of dilute it slightly. And then I had a slightly different idea so I could use the opening line, but it wasn't quite um, as it was in the, in the first draft. But yeah, I I didn't want to slaughter that darling because I thought, (laughs) Oh no, no, no. I'd regret. I, there are some darlings you can slaughter and you never regret it. Mm. because you just know you've made the book better. But I knew if I took that line out that I would regret it because where else am I going to use it? (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about the love story between Gillian and Davi because I thought it was so beautiful and it was the, the heart of the story. There was such an intimacy between them that when Judith arrives, and we will talk about her later, uh, when she <laughs> arrives, we, we I certainly felt I resented her for for interrupting this 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 romance. Um, so I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about how you developed their love story, particularly in this backdrop where it was illegal. I wanted to think about the impact that shame has on women, because I'm not really qualified to write a kind of queer love story. But I am qualified to talk about the impact that shame has, whether it's shame over um, mental health or your family's mental health or whether it's shame at being poor or, you know, whatever, being different from the norm in any way. And particularly women, we're we're always made to feel that we've got it wrong somehow, that we failed to meet the required standard. Mm. Um, So I started from there and I thought, well, what 
would it be like to be in love with somebody and then have to feel this constant pressure of this shame almost that you have to hide it, that you can't be seen to even hold hands or all of the things that we would take for granted about being in a relationship with somebody that just casual touch and casual contact or laughing and joking about what you did the night before or what your plans are for the weekend, all of the things that are so very normal for the vast majority of us. And I thought, well, that is interesting because I wanted to see how, how that would diminish their relationship and their feeling for each other because I thought there's got to be a price that you would pay for that. It's so hard to live like that, I think, for any length of time. Maybe in the beginning, it might feel quite romantic and secret and, you know, lovely. But I'm sure that after a number of months and years, which Dovey and Gillian had been together for years, um, it diminishes it because you look around and think, if I wasn't like this, it would be easier. If I could make a different choice here, it might be easier. So I really came at it from, from there. And I wanted to show those doubts and the impact of that shame and then introduce this kind of cuckoo in the nest, really, that mm. would exacerbate all of those little cracks that may already have existed between them in their very beautiful love story. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about that cuckoo let's talk about Judith <laughs> I know that so many readers have contacted you already and I'm sure many more will about how much they detest Judith um she really like you saying she really presses on their vulnerabilities and the weaknesses in their relationship and weasels her way in there she I think she's going to turn out to be one of the most hated characters in recent history so tell us about Judith then how did this character come to you and how do you feel when people tell you how much they loathe her? I love that. I have to be <laughs> honest. I absolutely love it. There is n nothing better, I think, than having readers that are really, truly engaged mm. with your characters. And, and I have had a lot of messages say like, you know, oh, I'd like to smash her face in and <laughs> all of this. But I take form it as a queue, kind of, Form a queue. Yeah, to form that. a queue. There is a long queue. <laughs> I, I feel kind of differently uh, I think about Judith to most people because um, she's my creation. And like a lot of authors, I try and see my characters as very rounded people. So I didn't want to write a caricature or somebody who was just a really horrible villain. Mm. Um, I wanted to write like a real human being who just keeps getting things wrong, who can't quite connect in the way that she wants to connect. I think I'd describe her someone as a bit like a wrong note on a piano. And so every interaction she has is, it, it's just wrong. She just stares at people too long. She talks inappropriately. She can't quite form normal human relationships, yet she really fascinates on people because she's so lonely and she's so desperate, mm. I think, to have a friend or to have a relationship in some way. So I wanted, from my point of view, I wrote her as this kind of wounded character that's kind of flailing around in this world, trying to find her way. I think people um, hate her so much because although her behavior is quite poor, which I won't spoil for anybody, um, but I think it's because they care about the love story between Dovey mm. and Gillian and they don't want somebody to come in and spoil that. 
So mm. I take it as a compliment that they care about the other characters I've created and <laughs> that I've done a, a job of work on this. It's made a not a caricature kind of villain, but somebody that they can see why she's doing it. They want her to stop doing it. Mm. <laughs> so and I, I, I think that. I think you're spot on. I, I think she's absolutely not a caricature. She she is very well rounded. And I think that's why she's so successful as this kind of villainous character, because it does stem from loneliness. And we have met people, or well, I know I have, that you just think, oh, why wouldn't they just go away? Because they're, yeah. you know, they're just there. But you know it doesn't come from, I mean, maybe we could argue this about Judith. It doesn't necessarily come from uh, a malicious place, but it comes from a place of envy or, or loneliness. But I mean, maybe there is a little bit of maliciousness in Judith, but, uh, but she's certainly a, a great character. And like you say, the fact that she can produce such feeling from your readers is evidence that she's such a great <laughs> character. I'm, I am very proud of her. I'm really proud of all the hate mail. <laughs> Not directed at me, thankfully. But yeah. yeah. So a, little, a hate club for Judith. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so there's such an atmosphere in your novel. Obviously, it's the historical setting it takes a lot of work from you to build this kind of picture, this atmosphere. You've got the, it's a very essential novel. We've got lots of smells and sights and like you say, the smoky atmosphere, the whiskey. And I was totally transported. And I know it reminded me of um, Small Pleasures by uh, Claire Chambers, who I know has uh, given your book uh, a great uh, blurb quote as well. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak about how you kind of achieved this, this historical setting, really, this atmosphere, what kind of research you did to, to help you create this great sense of place. Yeah, I mean, for me, writing historical fiction, it's very important to me that I create a world and I build this world that I want the reader to step into and literally inhabit 1970s New York or 1950s New York or whatever else I happen to be writing. I try to keep the issues quite modern and fresh, but I, I want to keep that world accurately as it, mm. as it was, so that the reader can experience that, because I think it's really satisfying. So I tend to use um, a lot of movie research for places. I also use a lot of old photographs. I use music. Um, and obviously I do um, read around. The other thing I tend to read is I tend to read a lot, uh, some novels sometimes that were written in that time. Um, so they would have been contemporary fiction at that time. Mm. And then it gives you, I find you get really great little details if you can find um, something that was written, you know, contemporary to the period you want to work in. Um, and I tend to take all of those and then just my kind of sense memory of like, well, if the garbage is on strike, what does that smell like? You know, mm. and I, I've been to New York a few times and it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a smelly city. Sometimes <laughs> you can smell the the garbage in the streets or, mm. you know, the, you have that experience of like the steam coming up from, a, from the subway vents and things. So there are things that have not changed that much. And then there are things that are quite different and you have to go to other sources, historical sources to try and find those. But I love that part of it. It's one of my favorite things to do is all of the kind of historical research. And it's a bit like a painting that you start with a kind of sketch outline and then you add layers and layers and layers and layers and layers until it just becomes so real that people can smell it and they can feel like they're, 
they they can feel the heat on them as they're walking those streets mm. um and then i i think yeah then then i've done a, a a pretty good job then as a writer if my readers are saying oh i felt like i was there it's that's all i want is for people yeah. to actually imagine they're in this shabby little apartment in downtown new york whether it's in 1970s or whether it's 1950s they can imagine what that's like mm. and, and you've yeah, got a that. um you've got a spotify playlist as well haven't you to to go along yeah. with the, the novel yeah um i, I used quite um a, a few tracks really to kind of get me in the mood for writing. I'm not usually a big one for, for listening to music. I can't listen to anything when I actually write, but sometimes I will focus on one song or two songs that just have that flavor of what I'm trying to get to. And one of the things I used for um, the 1950s section was um, Chet Baker's My Funny Valentine because it had all that glamour. It's quite sultry and mm. sensuous. It, it just gave me that flavour. You could imagine smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey late in a jazz club, you know. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly how I want the 1950s sections to feel for the reader. And then in the 1970s, I used um, Janice Ian at 17 um, because that was very evocative of my characters, kind of the struggling, lonely kind of teenager. Um, but it also gave that nice flavour of a kind of, you know, 1970s kind of vibe. And of course, because I'm quite old, I remember the 1970s. So I was really remembering myself what it was like at that time. Mm. So all of those things are, are good ways for me to access uh, my sense memories on things, really. You mentioned briefly that you wanted, you obviously, you're writing historical fiction, but you wanted to touch on contemporary issues, obviously yeah. uh, mental, this kind of the stigma of mental illness and also attitudes towards same-sex relationships. And mm. I was wondering really whether you think that you were almost speaking up for or giving an answer to the kind of silence surrounding these topics during their time, because they weren't things that were, they were very much hidden, I suppose, in society and, and in your novel as well. So do you think that you were almost trying to find a way to, to voice these issues within their time? Yes. I mean, I am, but also I'm also voicing these issues for our time mm. because it's not historical fiction for everybody, sadly. There are many, many countries in the world where there are Dubbies and Jillians who are hiding their relationship mm. for fear of persecution, prosecution, whatever. In fact, only the other day, a female teacher in Florida was fired for marrying her female partner. So it's not even historical fiction mm. in all of the states at the moment. Um, and that's what I tried to do, because I, I do write for women, really, about women. And I like to kind of present issues in a way that is very enjoyable as a read. You don't preach to people. But at the end of it, you want readers to kind of look at that and go, wow, I didn't know that. Or it wasn't that long ago, actually. Mm. And then to look around beyond that and say, oh, and it's still happening. Or it could happen again. We could go back there. And whatever the issues are, and in this case, very much it was kind of, you know, the mental health treatments back in the 1970s were pretty awful. Um, and obviously the treatment of homosexuality and the ideas of things like conversion therapies um, are still very much a hot topic mm. today. So that's what I tried to do. I tried to make the world as 
accurate as it was back then, as richly textured and sensuous as, uh, as I can make it. So that's really enjoyable on all levels for the reader. And then I want to make the reader think and care about the characters, obviously, first and foremost, follow their story, follow it just like page turning drama. But almost like at the end, you're sat there in your contemporary world. And at the end of it, I want you to kind of look up and be somewhere else, be somewhere in a slightly different space from where you were when you started the book to actually be thinking, oh, wow, maybe now mm. I understand a bit how hard that might must be to be in that situation, you know, whether you're going through mental health troubles or whether you're being parented by somebody who's going through that or whether you're in a situation where your relationship is illegal. Mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Despite the fact that we would class it as historical fiction, it does feel very contemporary, very fresh. And I think that is because you've addressed topics that are still very current today and also are haven't maybe been we haven't seen them as much in historical fiction. So I, I love that aspect of it. I want to talk now about your writing life. And also mm. we have to touch on your, you are a prolific tweeter and you also, I don't know how you do it and you're going to hopefully give us your powers <laughs> of wisdom, but how you balance your, I guess, would it be fair to say you're kind of like the, the temptation of the internet 
versus your writing time. So how do you how do you balance the two then? How do you stay away? I know you're you're very good at kind of hunkering down and getting the words on the page. So how do you manage that? Um, I just sit down and write. I mean, if I have something to do, I always set myself deadlines um, or they're set for me, obviously. <laughs> um, but even within that deadline, I will set myself targets of I want to do so many words a day and I want to get it finished by this date and I want to have time to read it back and so I'm always setting myself those kind of targets um and if I've got a target of kind of you know well I need to do a thousand words a day um it doesn't always happen got to be honest because it can't sometimes I'm stuck and sometimes I need to go watch Real Housewives while my plot works (laughs) itself out. Or sometimes you just don't feel like it. But most times I'm pretty good at saying, yeah, I'm going to do a thousand words a day or I'm going to edit three chapters today or whatever. And I will just get up and shuffle into my little literature mind and get on with it. Um, I don't believe in writer's block. I just believe in writing, bad writing, good writing get it on the page sort it out later walk away I am very much a kind of get it done let's get out of here because then we can play (laughs) and then once I start I I enjoy it obviously I enjoy world building and all that so I usually then carry on a bit but not always sometimes I'm struggling for words and I will just go right no no I need another hundred you can't leave until you've got another 200 (laughs) words on that page and so I am very disciplined Mm. um and I I tend to um treat twitter a bit like in back in the days many years ago when i used to teach and i used to smoke that i would be you know working really hard and then you go outside you for 10 minutes and have a cigarette then you go back to work so i treat twitter very much like my kind of smoke break really it's kind (laughs) of like okay i'll take 10 minutes now and i'll tweet a bit and then i'll go away and Mm. get on with my stuff and then i'll come back and do another 10 minutes so it looks like i'm always on there but in fact i'm not (laughs) (laughs) so are you quite good at then at putting the phone away and not kind of doom scrolling or just scrolling in general because i know I'm terrible for going, okay, I'm going to take a 10 minute break and that 10 minutes becomes 20 and that 20 minutes becomes 30. And then before I know it, half the morning's gone. Yeah. I mean, I'm as guilty of that as anything. I've said something interesting has <laughs> happened on happening on Twitter. It's really hard to put it away, you know? And um, so, yeah, but at the same time, I get my word count done. So sometimes it'll be kind of like, oh, well, I'm happy here just doom scrolling. So I'll just carry on for a bit. And maybe I'll I'll do that 500 words after after lunch now or whatever. So yeah, I can procrastinate as well as the next person, you know, <laughs> but as long as you get it done, it doesn't matter really. Mm, discipline is the answer, isn't it? Yeah, I think discipline is, but also you've got to be a bit kind to yourself. Some days you're just not up for it, you know. Not every day, you know, you can't be Shakespeare every day here. Yeah, I'm sure even Shakespeare had a day off, you know. So I wanted to talk about your kind of your love of writing and where that journey started, because I know um, you've spoken very openly about coming from a working class background where kind of ambition, there was very limited idea of what you you were capable of or what was a, a, a feasible career path. And I know you you've always loved writing and always wanted to be a writer, but it was something that you felt like wasn't in your, in your life, I guess. So can you talk mm. about what inspired you then to pursue your dreams and, and continue, well, I guess, start your writing career later in life? 
I think, um, I mean, yes, you're right. I mean, you know, I think I was about eight years old when I first read Little Women and just fell in love with the idea of, you know, Joe March writing in a garret mm. with her little stories. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a lovely way to spend your time. <laughs> and I was a very um, booky kid. You know, I always loved reading and I loved scribbling little stories. But it was very clear to me, I think, particularly by the time I became a teenager, that that wasn't anywhere near, uh, you know, the... Uh, the set path for me that nobody was interested in what I had to say. I was either too young or I was a woman or, you know, whatever else. Um, it wasn't something that was going to be available. So I just left school and I went and got a job and then eventually found my way back to university because I'd always been, I guess, a quite an ambitious kid but not for like material things really just for ambitious for more more experiences mm. more life and then it, the going back to writing in my kind of middle life it really took kind of two things one to kind of unpick this kind of committee you carry around in in our heads of people who've always told you no you can't or don't you think you better not or you know you're not very good at this or you, you can't do that or this is your path over here the same as your grandmother or whatever mm. so you've got to get rid of a lot of that nonsense to actually find out who you are what you love what you want to do um and also kind of by the time you get to your middle life you're kind of yeah times are ticking you know if I'm not going to do it now then when and imagine leaving this life and having those regrets of never having given it a go you know and then as I unpicked a lot of that stuff and I thought, you know, I, I do have things to say and there are not, we're all unique. We all have our unique, quirky little perspective, which is why everybody's books are different and which is why we love reading widely. Um, but I think that, you know, there are not many people who are, you know, were 60 years old from a working class background who had a mentally ill mother and done a variety of jobs and was a feminist and still I'm a feminist and all of those good things and then I, I thought well I've got a perspective that is not common in publishing actually and so why not why shouldn't I and mm. then you know I tried and obviously got rejected a lot of times but I'm stubborn so I kept going <laughs> yeah I was going to ask you about that because I read that you submitted a novel to Aidance and you got about 70 rejections and mm. I'm sure that fills people with horror to hear that and I'm sure there'll be many people that would have given up at that point but what was it that kept you going and and how did you kind of say okay right I'm gonna try again and I'm gonna take a different tactic what what was your what was your thinking then? I wrote a novel and it's yeah, it's not a bad novel there's some really good writing in it actually and there's some really good characters you know, I didn't go from being a really dreadful writer to being a great writer, and that's how I got published. I was always a pretty good, pretty good writer. I just wasn't very experienced at doing it. And I didn't have anybody who would say to me, this is what you need to focus on, Julie. This is what you need to stop doing or whatever. So I just needed a little bit of course correction, really. Not all of the rejections were, were bad. A lot of them were, you know, oh, you write really well, not for me at this time mm. kind of thing. Um, what I did, I think I'd fallen into the trap of, like most people, of not really knowing what I was doing and then sending it out too early. I think I wanted people to give me their opinions. And if you're going to get those opinions, don't get them from a literary agent on submission would be my advice. <laughs> it's too late by then. <laughs> it's too late by then. Get the opinions, people. You send mm -hmm. it. Um, 
and but there was a point that after a number of years of kind of flogging this poor thing to death and rewriting it and trying every which way I kind of sat down and thought it's not working it's not going to work just put it away and then I thought well maybe you know this is just a stupid dream and I should quit but I am quite stubborn so the idea of quitting for more than five minutes was you know uh, horrific to me so I thought no what I need is I need some advice here professional advice so I looked around and I saw like the Faber Academy did a kind of short course to do the first three chapters and I thought well, that's what I need and at the end of it there was like a tutor report on those three chapters and I thought this is what I need I need somebody mm. who knows what they're talking about to say to me right Julie what you're doing wrong is this or, or what you need to add more of or take out or whatever. And I, that's why I signed up for it. So I gave that a go and um, had a lovely tutor. And she actually said to me at the end of the course, oh, I think, you know, it's a matter of kind of when for you, not if. And she said, if you want to send me your first draft, I'll have a look at it for you. And I was so happy that I didn't have to send it out on submission before somebody knew what they were talking about <laughs> and looked at it. But before then, before I got to that point, I'd actually put the opening 1500 words into the Faber anthology and they'd sent it out to all of the lit agents. And then all of these lit agents started emailing me and saying, oh, could we read the rest of it? And lo and behold, you know, I got signed. So it was amazing yeah tell us about that then uh, because you signed with Nell Andrew also my agent so can you tell us about um your kind of first meeting with her and how did you know that she was the one <laughs> uh, yeah um Nell was the first agent to email me which was kind of confusing to me I was I didn't know the anthology had gone out and I was like why is Nell Andrew emailing me oh my goodness and then other people started emailing and Nell had asked and the others asked whether I had a full manuscript or whether that was all there was really and so I thought oh well I don't want because I had edited it I didn't want them to think like it was submission ready and mm. then they would do what had happened before when I'd sent it out too early so I came up with a really clever thing I thought and I said um Yes, it's not ready for submission, but I can give you a preview if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> and Nell being Nell suggests, yes, of course. So I sent them all their full manuscripts to read. Nell read it overnight because that is what Nell is like when she's after something. And she came back to me the next day and said, yeah, love this, needs work. Can you be in my office next week? So I was, okay. <laughs> and then um, other agents invited me up to London to meet with them. And I went to meet with Nell in her office. And she was the one that was, she had my manuscript printed out. She had pages of editing notes already. And I hadn't even signed with her. You know, she was just like, I love it. I absolutely love this book. This is, oh, and I've just turned down two other books because like they said, oh, it just didn't give me the same feeling as yours did. And I love this and I really want it. But here's what's wrong with it. You need to do this. You need to fix this. You need to, you know what she's like. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, and the one thing about Nell that she will tell everybody is when she puts her name on something to send it out on submission, you are going to have to meet her standard because otherwise she's not going to put her name on it. And so when she's very editorial, 
she really gets involved with the nuts and bolts. And so, you know, she wants to know whether you're up for that, whether you're willing to mm. do the work. And, oh, my God, willing to do the work? I would have cleaned her office for her, honestly. <laughs> but I knew because, I mean, the other agents I met with were really lovely and they were very, very nice. But I knew, I, I just mm. knew. I thought, no, now she's going to be a pain. She's going to drive me crazy. She's going to demand more than I want to give her. But she is absolutely the right person to make me the best that I can be and make my work the best that it can, mm. it can be. So, yeah, I, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask her whether she regrets it. <laughs> I'm sure she has no regrets. Um, yeah. I was just thinking back to uh, my first kind of editorial conversation with her on the phone. And I think I've still got a whole uh, section on my phone, which is just notes from this conversation of, Mm. things we discussed and the edits that we went through so did you have to do a lot of editorial work before you went on submission with with now yeah I, I mean I it didn't go on for for ages I knew some people have been in edits with her for about 12 months and she did tell me that up front and I was like okay <laughs> but actually we went through um I, I think two rounds or something and then you know she was really happy with the edits and we sent it out but it changed a lot um, when I got my book deal and, and started editing with my actual editor because the two strands weren't as connected as they are now. Right. And it was obviously something, I, I think because I am a pantser and I don't plan and plot that I just write because I hadn't got it submission ready. Um, part of the plot was still left in my brain, I think, and that I hadn't quite realised that. And then we as we went through the edits, um, it, it kind of revealed itself. Sometimes you really need people asking you the right questions, mm. which is obviously the joy of being professionally edited by anyone that they will say, what are you trying to get at here? Or mm. would this character do this? Or, you know, all of those kind of good things that get makes your brain ache. And then you start thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, no, <laughs> uh, wait, no, I think we need to go. Mm. usually in my case it's in this direction which is an enormous amount more work than I really want to do but <laughs> that is the way we need to go it's worth it in the end definitely oh yeah yeah so I was wondering now thinking about readers and books that they might enjoy can you think of any other novels that you think are similar to that green-eyed girl or kind of share a similar space what would you say are your kind of comparison novels oh I mean you're Somebody described it, which I quite love, really, as the love child of um, Simple Pleasures <laughs> by Claire Chambers and um, what's it called? The um, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I quite like that description, actually. I think that's got, actually quite cool. But I think it's kind of, if you like Claire Chambers, I if you like kind of and Patchett's kind of work as well. I like Commonwealth is one of my favourite. Mm, that's an um, amazing book. Books of hers. Mm. And I love that idea of coincidences kind of leading onto this kind of family saga. So those kind of things, I think, mm. um, are where I, I like to see it, really. And we've heard a lot about your process already, but I was wondering whether you can share with us your three best bits of advice for aspiring writers or writers who are already working on their first novel? Um, uh, my number one piece of advice is don't overthink it. Just sit down and write. 
I have a helpful belief and it may be helpful to other people, so I will share it. I, when I work, I always have a belief that this book is, exists somewhere, that I know exactly what it is that I'm aiming for. And I just need to sit down and write and I don't need to think about it too much. And I don't need spreadsheets and I don't need plans and post-its. I just need to trust my gut and it will come out. And I find often when I edit, actually, and I go back through, it's almost like I've put these little seeds there for plot points I didn't even know that I was going to develop. But when I go back in, I think, oh, it, I knew part of me knew this. <laughs> so I think trust yourself and write and see what you get because you can edit, but you can't edit a blank page. So mm. get in there and write. I think a lot of people get caught up in the research and caught up in the planning stage, and but they don't have any words on the page. So write and see what you get and then edit and don't send it out too early. Give it a little, <laughs> give it a little rest and then go back and read it again. And then you start answer, asking yourself the tough questions, I think, which is, does this work? Would it be better if another character um, was the voice of this? Would it be better to structure it differently? And really be quite tough on yourself and, you know, don't have a kind of, yeah, that's good enough, I'll send it in and let the literary agent tell me it's poor. Mm. Or she won't mm. tell you that. It'll just be silence, really. Be no, so, yeah. Yeah. So finally, I know you've been busy working on book two. So are you mm. able to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I am. Um, book two uh, at the moment is titled Spangleland. I don't know whether it will be still titled Spangleland by the, by the time you know it comes out because the process is such that it changes. Um, but it is set in London in 1958. And it is the story of women who kind of come together in this really shabby boarding house in London. Um, and they've all got very interesting kind of backstories. And it's a very, again, a very female centered book. There are issues at the heart of it of kind of, um, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers. So I've got to be really careful what I say here. But anyway, there are woman centered issues at the heart of this, I think, <laughs> of that period of time of a lack of kind of women's rights and things. And these women come together and kind of affect each other's lives, um, you know, and yeah, I think it's it's pretty good. And it's it's an, a lovely world of kind of sleazy nights out in Soho and, you know, trying to find pennies for the meter in a, in a shabby boarding house in London. So happy days there's lots of tea there's a lot of tea drinking in it. <laughs> not and, so much whiskey this time not no whiskey in it but gin and limes okay. there's a lot oh, of okay. gin and limes yeah and, and and i'm hoping you've had to do a lot of uh, research on the gin front as well on the what sorry <laughs> on the gin front <laughs> oh yeah 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 i don't like gin and lime though i have to say oh. I, but I did, I did do the research on it but i know i think no <laughs> my character can have the gin and lime i'm not so keen <laughs> but i don't like i don't like whiskey either so it must just be something i do is give characters drinks that i don't actually like <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a good thing because then you wouldn't be uh sloshed while you're uh, writing <laughs> yeah good point <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast julie you're very welcome, Chloe. Thank you so much. That was Julie Owen Moylan talking about her historical debut, That Green-Eyed Girl, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. 
See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.